This morning I want to uh, bring you to the topic of the Bible and biological evolution. Um, I, I really think as I consider kind of the way things are going, uh, we've had the uh, anniversary this past uh, January or so of Darwin's birth and uh, things like that, and there's more and more stuff in the news every day, it seems there was a TV program on last Sunday night uh, called um, Did uh, God uh, Create the Universe? Stephen Hawking's Curiosity, I think, was the official title on the Discovery Channel. How many of you saw that program? One. Well, you're the only one that's acknowledged that in both services. <laughs> a very, very interesting uh, program. Uh, John and I watched it at home and... Um, the program uh, was, you know, you know that a program that starts out with a title, Did God Create the Universe by Stephen Hawking, is not going to come out that way. I mean, you just know automatically that's going to move in the other direction. But that's the essence of the debate that is really heating up in our time. And uh, more and more, we are having to face this kind of um, teaching that is prevalent. And it's not simply a problem with, quote, the unbelieving scientific community. Not that the scientific community is unbelieving, but the subset who are. But it is also a problem in Christian universities and colleges and seminaries because more and more um, professors and teachers and leading uh, evangelicals in the scientific world, are trying to push out there some kind of harmonization between evolution and Scripture. And uh, so it's something that the church is facing. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning just kind of looking at what the Scripture says and then looking at uh, that relative to the probability of life occurring on this planet without the benefit of a Creator. And I hope that uh, we will come to some good conclusions. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, what you have here, we're in, we're in day three of the creative week. And God is preparing the earth ultimately uh, for the, the final creation event of humankind. And as he's doing that, the first thing he does is he calls forth the dry land out of the water. You remember until now it's been just a watery mass. The whole world has been water. But he's calling the dry land out. And as he does that, uh, he prepares a place for vegetation. And I want you to follow the sequence here. It's, it's kind of interesting Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning a third day. Now, if you were just, if you didn't know anything about anything, but you were just reading this, you know, at at face value, what does it sound like happened? 
It sounds to me like God called the land out of the water. It somehow kind of rose up. And then he said, let the, or, let the earth sprout vegetation. Trees that have seeds in them. And fruit trees that have seeds in the fruit. And he said, let this happen. And the earth sprouted this vegetation. That sounds kind of like fast to me. I mean, it sounds, it sounds to me like it just whoosh, sprang up. Now, some theistic evolutionists and Christian evangelicals, I, I use those terms loosely, I don't know what to call them anymore, but, but some Christians believe, who believe in the ancient earth think that God took uh, millions and millions and millions of years during this era to develop this. But the, the plain reading of the text kind of suggests to me that this just kind of sprang forth when God said, let this happen. We come to the conclusion of the third day. There's evening, there's morning. Or there's morning, there's evening, the third day. Evening and morning, sorry. Third day. And then in verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from night. Let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And He made the stars also. God put them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Many people get hung up right here. Because if you look at the creative sequence, you have plant life occurring on day three and the sun not appearing or even being made until day four. You know, and, and a lot of people get kind of get stumped right there and say, it's not possible. It's not possible that you can have plants before you have the sun. Well, the truth is, any pot grower knows this. I'm talking about uh, cannabis now, the kind of stuff that you smoke. Because they grow it in their basements hydroponically with artificial light. They don't need a sun to grow their pot. And God, in the beginning, said, one of the first things, let there be light. So in the first place, we don't have to have a sun to have light and to have plant life. We have light already available from the very first. But God creates the plants into this environment before he makes the sun. Now, the second thing is, is that people who think that this is a very, very long period of time run into trouble here because they do get confused. You know, they say, well, how could it, how could it have taken all this period of time? This had to be short. But if, as I read the sequence of Scripture and follow along with what God is doing, I have no problem believing that on the third day He called forth the vegetation and on the fourth day He made the sun and the moon and the stars and on the fifth day He begins to make other kinds of life. The interesting thing that is to me as I read the sequence is that this, except for the sun part, that the development of plant life followed by the development of aquatic life followed by the development of land animals more or less follows what evolutionists think happened. And many times there is a congruence Science kind of observes things, but they just don't know how it all came together. And they're missing those elements, but they observe things, and that's the conclusions that they draw. 
After the fourth day, beginning in verse 20, God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Now, there are two things that come begin to come out here that I want to underscore for you. First of all, notice it says, let the waters teem. What image does that bring to mind? A few things or a lot of things? You know, if something's teeming with stuff, it, it means there's a lot of growth going on. Uh, I was once again uh, looking at the samples from my uh, collections in the windowsill of river water and marsh water and whatever. It is amazing the quantity of life forms that occur teeming in a single drop under a microscope. I mean, just stuff that you can't even see. Forget about all the stuff that you can see. The waters are literally teeming with life. In fact, one of the interesting things is if you dry something up and then you go back and add water to it later, it's not like everything died. A lot of these little things just kind of shrunk into themselves and they come back. And they start multiplying and filling up the place again. The next thing after the creation of plant life is that God makes the teeming waters filled with sea monsters and little things. He fills up the oceans and the waters. And then he fills up the sky with the birds. And then finally, on the sixth day, it says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then finally God says, let us make man in our own image. On the sixth day, last creative day, God begins to make the land animals. And the key phrase that we find in all of these that's common is, after their kind. There's been some interesting recent investigation into reclassifying biological life by creation scientists. Uh, you know, we're, we're familiar with the phylogenus and species and all of that that uh, we've seen in the textbook for years and years and years since... You know, since all of us were in, in grade school, we've seen that kind of classification because it's been around for a good while. But creation scientists are beginning to look and, rec and look at a possible reclassification of things in biblical terms. And the reason is this, because no student of Scripture denies that change occurs within kinds. In fact... You can ask any four-year-old while you're reading the animal book to him or her to pick out the cats in the book. And whether it's your Persian at home or a bobcat or a lion or a tiger or a cougar, they can pick out the cats. They know what a cat is. They know what a cat looks like in whatever shape or form or size it comes in, they recognize cats. 
It can also probably pick out dogs and wolves and coyotes and other creatures that are canine in nature and recognize that these are all dog-like creatures. We don't deny that there are changes that have come about in the animal kingdom as time has gone along. That God may have indeed created a kind from which various and sundry different forms have arisen. But, in 150 years of biological investigation, and much of it in the last several decades that have been very, very focused and critical in terms of analyzing and determining what's going on, it has never yet been observed that even a species of bacteria will change into another species. Even under the most cleverly designed laboratory experiments that are are intended to push that kind of change, in 150 years of biological investigation, no one has ever seen one form change into a completely different form. In fact, the statement remains true that nearly all mutations are eventually in some way harmful to the organism. They favor its extinction rather than its forward momentum development. And so, as God makes all of these things, He makes them after their kind. And nothing we observe contradicts that essential description. Finally, at the end of the sixth day, the scripture says God makes human beings. Adam and Eve made in the image of God at the end of the sixth day. They bear his likeness. And the terminology is very clear that they are unique, that they are special, that they are created separately, that they have not only animal characteristics of this planet, but they also have spiritual characteristics of God that they are in a unique relationship with God, and that as he draws to the end, he says, and let them rule over all the other things that are uh, created and placed within the world. It's absolutely clear from Scripture that God distinguishes and differentiates human beings above and beyond uh, any other kind of biological life and gives us the responsibility of stewardship. I've said it before, but we could make a a huge case for Christians being, uh, you know, good green people, good ecologists, good managers of the planet. We're supposed to be, not supposed to go crazy on this, but we're supposed to be good managers because God made us that way. Well, what I would like to spend some time on this morning, because we could could go a million different ways and, and we could be here for hours and hours, and I actually finished early in the 8 o'clock service. So, so you're in for a good ride, I think. It won't be too long. Um, but what I want to do this morning is look at the possibility, the probability of life occurring on the planet without the benefit of God. Now, Stephen Hawking came to that conclusion. But it was interesting to me that in listening to his assessment of the universe, which, by the way, by his own acknowledgement, he has figured out. He understands how the universe was made and how everything came out of it. And, and, that's, and he said that in, in the program. It's a very amazing statement. 
And according to him, God is not necessary to the process. With the physics that we are aware of, and Einstein, uh, Einstein's relativity theory, he went all the way back to the beginning, and he said the only thing you need to make a universe is space, matter, and energy. And then he revised it back on the basis of Einstein's theory that you don't even need matter. All you need is space and energy. And he says the Big Bang occurred, and it created the universe. He used that word. I thought that was interesting. And then at the end of the program, when he was all said and done, he begins to wind it down, and he says, uh, without wanting to offend those who have faith, he said, I have come to the conclusion uh, that this entire universe can be explained by the laws of physics and the Big Bang. It does not need God, and we have but this life in which to explore the amazing design of this universe. And I thought, why didn't you say the amazing random chance? Because it's obvious to him that it's designed. There's a design. And he can't even talk about it without using terms that imply a designer and a creator. And yet, he comes to the conclusion that God is not necessary to the equation. We've looked at some of that stuff, but this morning I want to focus just on the question, what are the chances that life could have occurred spontaneously on this planet with no intervention from any outside source? Now, well, but you've got to let me prove that because that's part of my sermon, okay? <clears throat> so... In order to do that, I want, to, I want to take you on a little bit of a bunny trail. I'm going to chase out in the corner and come back. I want, to, I want to take you on a trail. And I want you to just kind of imagine with me a little bit. First of all, how many of you have ever fantasized about winning the lottery? Uh, <laughs> a lot of honest folks. Okay. I admit that I've fantasized about winning the lottery. It's pure fantasy because I've never bought a lottery ticket. So it's, it's, hard, it's hard to win the lottery if you don't buy the ticket. But, but I have thought, you know, you hear somebody, in fact... In um, November 15th, uh, 2005, someone won the highest pot ever, $355 million. You know, and you say, what would I do with $355 million? Well, if you've ever fantasized about that, I wonder what your chances are of actually winning the lottery if, if you were to buy a lottery ticket. Well, some statistician uh, calculated all of this out, and he put this in a wonderful uh, web website that you can go. Just type in the Google in the question, what are my chances of winning the lottery? And you'll probably turn up this website. First thing that he did, well, actually one of the first things, one of the last things he did after going through all the statistical probability, he compared it <clears throat> to the U.S. government statistics of your chance of being killed in a car accident. And then <clears throat> he compared that to driving one mile from your house to buy a lottery ticket and driving back home. And here's what he came up with. Your chances of being killed in a car accident driving one mile to the convenience store and one mile back home are six times more likely than your chance of winning the lottery once you get the ticket. So that's your first thing you need to know. You're six times more likely to die in a car wreck to go buy your lottery ticket than you are at, to win the lottery. Another sidebar here is that he did the um, the total population statistics on the after-tax return of an investment of a lottery ticket. 
Now remember that the dollar you have in your pocket, you've already paid taxes on, probably. <laughs> if, you know, if, you, if you're a W-2 employee, you pay taxes on that. So that's a tax-free dollar. You go to the convenience store and you plop it down for a lottery ticket. What is your ROI, your rate of return, globally on that dollar? The answer is 60 cents. Across the nation, for every dollar spent on a lottery ticket, the rate of return is 60 cents. Now, it's true that when a person wins the jackpot, they make a lot more than that, but that's because all the rest of you didn't lose 40 cents. You lost your whole dollar. In fact, so many of you lost your whole dollar that the true ROI is 60 cents. So your after-tax income on your lottery investment is 60 cents on the dollar. Nothing is sadder to me. I saw this sometimes on a Friday afternoon. If you, if you are at a convenience store and you see somebody come in after work and they buy a 24 case of beer and $50 worth of lottery tickets, and they don't even look like they can afford groceries. You know, and I would, and I would see that site and it would just make me so sad because you realize they had just gotten paid. They went home and, and just drink beer and watch TV and hope they win the lottery to get them out of their misery. And, and that, that, that is a tragic direction to take because the end of it obviously is going the wrong direction. Okay. <clears throat> Enough preaching on that subject. What are your chances of winning the lottery now that I've said all that? Well, here they are. One chance in 176,470,590 that you will be a mega lotto winner. One chance in 176 million. Let's just round it up. Now, if we take that statistic and we say, in comparison to biology... What are the chances that a single peptide will form by accident out there in the primordial soup? Now, what is a peptide? A peptide is made up of amino acids. It's a chain of amino acids. A polypeptide goes together to form a protein. A protein is the building block of a cell. So when we have a peptide, we don't have a protein and we aren't even close to having a cell. But let's just leave it at the peptide level for a minute. What are the chances in the primordial soup that a lightning bolt or something caused a peptide to form? Well, that has been calculated at 1 in 10 to the 40th power. Now, how can we compare that number to your chances of winning the mega lottery? Well, here's the comparison. The chances of a peptide forming by accident in the primordial soup is equal to your chances of winning the megalotto 16 times in your life. I searched the Internet because I thought I had heard that somebody won that twice. And, and if, you, if anybody can help me out with this, I'm open. But I searched the Internet, and I could never find it. To win it twice is astronomical. To win it once is astronomical. To win it twice is unthinkable. To win the Megalotto 16 times in a row, or 16 times in your life, is, in fact, an unimaginable number. But if that were to occur you're still only left with a peptide 
that doesn't even equal to a protein that is the building block of life. I mean, we haven't even gotten started yet. And the chances of probability are unbelievably small. I want to introduce you to a term called irreducible complexity and give you some information about that. And then we're going to look at these sheets that I handed out to you. Don't look at them yet because I don't want you to get, <laughs> I don't want you to get distracted. Can't afford to lose any of these sentences or, or you're lost. Irreducible complexity. What is that? A guy by the name of Michael Behe, who is a biochemist and a researcher at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, has come to the conclusion that there must be intelligent design to life because he spent his life researching biochemistry at the most fundamental level. And he says that you reach a certain point beyond which you cannot go or else you don't have life. And that point is called the point of irreducible complexity. You take one more piece out and what you have is not living. Now, let me compare it to a mousetrap, because that's what he does. A mousetrap has five essential components. Visualize it with me. You've all set mousetraps, probably. It has a board on the bottom. It has a hammer that swings over and breaks the little mousey's head. I don't mean to be too graphic in my message here this morning. It has a spring that makes the hammer flip over. It has a trigger that you put the bait on. And it has a holding bar that comes over the hammer. When you pull the spring back, you put the holding bar in the little wedge thing on the trigger, and you have a mousetrap. Now, how many mice could you catch if your mousetrap was missing one of those five pieces. If you didn't have the base, you couldn't hold it all together. If you didn't have the spring, the hammer would do no good. If you didn't have the hold bar, you couldn't set it. If you didn't have the hammer, it wouldn't do any damage. If you didn't have the little trigger mechanism, it wouldn't work at all. In other words, the mousetrap needs all five pieces to function as a mousetrap. It can't function without any one of them. You take one of them out, you will catch no mice. So the complexity of a mousetrap boils down to five required pieces, and you can't go any further than that, or you've lost it. Now, another gentleman by the name of Michael Denton wrote a book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. And here's what he said. The tiniest bacteria is, in effect, a veritable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up altogether of 100,000 million atoms far more complicated than any machine made by man and absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. So let me go back to our little peptide 
and your chances of winning the lottery mega millions 16 times in your life. When you have the peptide, you only have something that is perhaps one thousandth of the components necessary to the most basic form of life that we know about on the planet. Viruses can't reproduce without borrowing DNA. So bacteria is the most basic form of life. And that most basic form, according to Michael Denton, is comprised of 100,000 million atoms far more complicated than the space shuttle. More complicated than the most powerful supercomputer. More complicated than the fastest military jet bomber. More complicated than the biggest aircraft carrier. More complicated than any machine human beings with all of their mental abilities have designed. A single bacterium is more complex than anything imaginable made by man. And the chances of that forming, well, someone did some calculations and they came up with, now, now look at the papers I gave you and look at the one that is called the probability of life. I think it's on the back of page two. This is actually, there's two different articles here, one of them written by a creationist, one of them written by an evolutionist. And this article with all the writing on it is by the evolutionist. The chance of that peptide forming is 1 over 10 to the 40th power, which is this long number at the bottom. I've given you billions, trillions, quadrillions, centillions, and I quit there because I don't know how to keep going up. But the chances are pretty small. Okay? Someone calculated the chances of the basic components of a bacterium and said that it would be equal to 1 over 10 to a power that if the number were printed, it would equal a book this thick filled with zeros. And, and the first step is unimaginably impossible. In fact, uh, Morowitz, in his uh, book, who was an evolutionist writing in the uh, late 60s, 70s, 80s, and he's written a book as recently as um, about five years ago, I think. Morowitz, who was an evolutionist, came to the conclusion, after analyzing biological evolution his whole life, he said, it is not possible without some kind of intelligent design. It is not possible. It cannot happen. Others have come to that conclusion that have come at it from a purely scientific point, but have had enough integrity to say, we are up against mathematical probability here, that is beyond reason. This could not have happened simply by chance. But I want you to look at this article just for a moment, and I want to read you some highlights, because this is the counter article to the creationist probability article. So look at it for a moment. And I want you to see some of the things that he says. Creationists often claim that the chances of a modern enzyme forming by random means are astronomically small. Didn't I just say that? And therefore, the chances of a complete bacterium, which is composed of hundreds or thousands of such enzymes and proteins, 
is so near to impossible that it would never happen in the 13 billion years or so since the universe took shape. All right, so he has us pegged. At least he has me pegged. Okay, I will admit that. I just said that. It's impossible. And so he's got, he's got my number. And he says the main problem with this argument is that it assumes abiogenesis, and I, I will read you a definition of abiogenesis so we know what we're talking about. Abiogenesis is the study of how biological life arises from inorganic matter through natural process. So, how, how do you get a cell that's living from stuff that isn't living? How does that happen? That's abiogenesis. The argument is that it assumes abiogenesis was a totally random process. Alright, guilty again. I, that's what I said. It's totally random. It also assumes that in order for abiogenesis to be successful, <coughs> a complete microbe would have to have formed spontaneously. In fact, notice his wording, in fact, that's not just a way to make the sentence move forward. In fact, the same non-random forces which propel biological evolution also propelled abiogenesis, specifically natural selection. Did you notice that natural selection is capitalized here? I just printed this off the internet. This is what they wrote. Natural selection is capitalized. Why? Why do they capitalize natural selection? Because they have personified it. They have endowed it with ability to design and to drive and propel and determine outcomes. They are investing natural selection with the properties of a designer. Don't lose sight of that. The calculation which supports the creation argument begins with the probability of a 300 molecule long protein forming by total random chance. This would be approximately one chance and 10 to the 390th power. My number here at the bottom is 10 to the 40th power. Okay, This number is astoundingly huge. No kidding. By comparison, the number of all the atoms in the observable universe is only 10 to the 80th. Okay, so if a simple protein has that unlikely chance of forming, what hope does a complete bacterium have? If this were the theory of abiogenesis, and if it relied entirely on random chance, then yes, it would be impossible for life to form this way. So he's agreeing with us. If random chance is behind it, there's no possibility. So what is behind it? Well, he says this is not the case. Look at the paragraph in the middle. Abiogenesis was a long process with many small incremental steps, all governed by the non-random forces. The opposite of non-random is what? Organized, right? I mean, uh, the corollary to non-random is organized. Random means, but non-random means, that means organized. 
of natural selection, notice the capital letters, and chemistry. The very first stages of abiogenesis were no more than simple self-replicating molecules which might have hardly been called alive at all. Now, the interesting thing about that paragraph, there's nothing in it that's scientific. Do you remember the rules of science? You have to observe it. You have to establish some kind of controls. You have to record what you see. You, you have to be able to repeat it. You have to bring it into your laboratory or design a system out there in the world that you can, you know, through statistical probability, reduce to likelihood, et cetera, et cetera. You, it's something you have to see and measure. There is nothing in that sentence that he can see or measure. And friends, we need to learn to think critically. We, as, as believers, we need to learn to ask questions. When people make statements, ask the question, how do they know that? How do they know that? And the answer is they don't know that. No one knows this. It's not knowable. It is beyond the realm of science. Then he goes on. For example, the simplest theorized self-replicating peptide is only 32 amino acids long. The probability of it forming randomly in sequential trials is approximately 1 to 10 to the 40th, which is much more likely than the 1 to 10 to the 390th claim creationist site. Well, yeah, it's more likely. It's equal to you winning the mega lottery 16 times. That's how likely that is. But, to be fair, he says it's still a very large number in the next paragraph. Yes, it is. It would still take an incredibly large number of sequential trials before the peptide would form. But remember that in the prebiotic oceans of the early Earth, there would be billions of trials taking place simultaneously as the oceans, rich in amino acids, were continuously churned by the tidal forces of the moon and the harsh weather conditions of the earth. What's scientific about that paragraph? Nothing. He wasn't there. He was, this is imagination. This is pure conjecture. It has no basis in any kind of observable phenomena that anyone can list. In fact, he says, if we assume... The volume of the oceans were 10 to the 24th liters. The amino acid concentration was, uh, etc. Then, bottom line, even given the difficult chances of 1 in 10 to the 40th, the first stages of abiogenesis could have started very quickly. Really. And not only that, after it's all said and done and you have a peptide, what do you have? You have one one thousandth of what it takes to make your mousetrap. And you've got to have them all forming together simultaneously and all coming together simultaneously and all landing in the same place at the same time in the same creative moment so that life could happen. And the possibility of that happening is astronomically beyond reason. It is interesting that Darwin made a statement, if I can find it. Um, here's Charles Darwin. This is his his own words, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not have possibly been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Okay, friends, his theory has absolutely broken down. Unbelievers who have no faith in God, but who have had enough integrity to look at the probability 
have come to the conclusion that for life to form on earth purely by chance is impossible. Not unlikely, it is impossible according to the laws of physics and statistical probability. It cannot happen. They must introduce intelligent design. They must introduce a force. And for evolutionists, that force is capitalized natural selection, which is the intelligent driving motivation behind evolution. If we just had to answer the question of that first bacterium appearing on the planet, that's already impossible. It's difficult enough. But beyond that, there are other questions that have to be answered. One of the things that's interesting is what's called convergent life forms. It has been noted, for example, that whales and horses have similar anatomic structure. Evolutionists look at that and say, oh, this is, this is kind of a convergent life form. Here are these two, uh, two different animals developing along the evolutionary tree that have similar appearance, and yet the whale is in the ocean and the horse is trotting across the fields. And, and uh, let's see if we can explain that. Some studies have been done along those lines to come up with the possibility of that occurring, again, by random chance, and non-believing scientists are baffled. But for those of us who look at things like that, you remember my discussion of the architect and Frank Lloyd Wright and his design or whatever, for us who have a confidence in God, what does similarity of design imply? When you see a series of watches that have the same characteristics and the same kind of mechanisms driving them, even if their faces are a little different, what do you expect? When you find a car maker who makes vehicles that all have similar characteristics, you can tell a Toyota from a Ford just by sitting in it. And you immediately think different designer. When we look at things that have similar form and function, our conclusion is they must have had the same designer. Because that's the obvious conclusion to that observation. What about symbiosis? Symbiosis is where two organisms literally depend on each other for survival. They don't just help each other out. They depend on one another for survival. There are many, many examples of symbiotic relationships in the biological world. Uh, a, a lichen grows on a tree bark or whatever. That, that may not be one of those. But, but there are many examples of symbiotic type relationships where they actually contribute to one another's survival. In order for that to occur in the evolutionary model, not only would evolution have to be statistically probable, but now you have two life forms that have to arrive on the scene at exactly the same time, in exactly the same place, in their complex form, in order to find each other and continue to exist. These are total impossibilities. So after you have boiled down the entire analysis of the question, I want to end with a statement from Occam's Razor and the Law of Parsimony. 
It's not that scary. It's very simple. When faced with competing hypotheses that are equal in other respects, choose the one that makes the fewest new assumptions. In other words, when I look at life on this planet and I try to understand how it came to be, how it happened, what are my alternatives? What are my choices? One is that God made it. Just like he said he did, pure and simple, straightforward. God did it. The other one is, it just happened, randomly, by chance. However, if you look at those two equations, the one is impossibly complicated. In fact, I've just spent the last 25 minutes demonstrating to you that it is statistically impossible for life to have simply happened. The amount of occurrences that would need to be pulled together simultaneously by the admission of non-believing biologists who have come to an honest assessment is this could never happen on its own. What is the simplest answer? The simplest answer is that there is an all-wise creator who designed it and put it together by his own power. One of the things that I said in the beginning of our discussion on the scientific series is that when it's all said and done, it boils down to faith. You either have faith in God or you have faith in random chance. You have faith in a number so large that you should spend your entire paycheck on the lottery every single week because you are destined to win the Mega Millions. Not 16 times, but every time you play if you're an atheistic evolutionist. You, it would make sense to be consistent with your faith to spend your whole paycheck on the lottery every week. Because you have more chance of winning than you do of your belief about origins coming true. Stephen Hawking, in the end of his program, the one that they did with him last Sunday evening, comes to this conclusion and he says, so for me, he says, I'm content. It doesn't bother me that the only life that I have is the one I'm now living and that I can explain the origins of the universe and all the complexity of this world on the basis of pure physics laws without the benefit of a creator. I don't need a God in my universe. As I listened to his confident assertion of his ability to explain the universe, the comparison that leapt to my mind was the number of psychotic schizophrenics I have talked with over years of pastoral ministry. And as I have listened to schizophrenics in psychotic episodes talk about their delusions, some of them are very intelligent. If you watch the movie A Beautiful Mind, you can be a Ph.D. and be psychotically deluded and still have passed all your tests and be brain smart. 
As I listened to Stephen Hawking's, the impression that came to me was, I'm listening to a mega, mega, megalomaniac who is so deluded that if he were not saying something people wanted to hear, no one would believe him. The fact is, he is saying something that people want to hear. He's saying, you don't need God. And the reason that they don't want to hear that is, if there is a creator of the laws of physics, he is also potentially the creator of the Ten Commandments. And there is a moral law and a moral God to whom we must answer. And if he exists, then one day we're going to have to answer to him for how we lived our lives. And it's not going to be according to our rules. It's going to be according to his rules. And if we don't measure up, we're going to fail the test. There are people, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, who prefer to rule God out, choosing to believe a lie rather than the truth that is indelibly inscribed upon their heart. And, and people go to desperate means to quiet their conscience. But all the while, the world and the universe screams about the existence of God. And the Bible says they know about him because God has written it on the heart of every man. Stephen Hawking says, I don't need God to live a useful moral life. He didn't use the word moral, but basically says, I can live a good life. And at the end of the program, there was a debate on religion. If science has conclusively proven that God is not necessary, what good is religion? And one of the debaters said, well, religion helps to make people good. Uh, people that, that have faith tend to behave better and be better contributors to society, like the deluded masses, remember communism, like the deluded masses, it'll keep you in line. But for those of us who are educationally above it all, we know better. We don't have to have religion to make us moral, kind of like Hitler and other people of his stripe. There's no difference in those outcomes. The bottom line is, friends, we will have to answer to God. He is there. As Francis Schaeffer said, he's not silent. And the day will come when we stand before the bar of justice and judgment. You and I will face it. Stephen Hawking will face it. And the scripture says the only clothing of righteousness that will get us past that moment will be the, clothe, the clothing of the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, washed in his blood, cleansed by his cleansing power, restored and alive in Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you is, you do not ever need to be embarrassed by your beliefs. The world's going to mock you and make fun of you. We're headed that way. But you never need to back down from your convictions. The flip side of that coin is we need to pray for lost people. We're not going to reason them into the kingdom. But we need to pray that God will open their eyes. They have believed a lie. They are deluded. And they are hoping that in the end there will be nothing beyond the grave. Or perhaps if there is something, it will be nice. 
it's not going to be nice. And it is there. And we need to pray for them that they will have an opportunity to hear and understand the gospel and turn to Christ. Because the reality is, God loves them. It's hard for me to read the things they write without a certain element of sarcasm because it's so astounding in its conjecture. But we need to take care not to make fun of the people in their, in their person, but to love them. Because without Jesus Christ, they are destined for a very, very sad future. Father, I pray that you would reinforce and encourage us in our faith. And I pray this morning that you would also give us a great love and compassion for those who oppose themselves, believing a lie, going in a wrong direction. That perhaps, Lord, you would grant them faith leading to repentance and that they would come to know Jesus Christ. May we be among them as lights shining in the darkness. Not by our great intellectual ability to debate, but by the love that is manifest in our heart for other people that reflects your character in ways that are unmistakable. Lord Jesus, as you put it so clearly, let your light so shine before men that they will see the works that you do, the good works, and recognize they are from your Father in heaven and give him glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.